Welcome to the Ralph Moore Podcast. Gain a leadership advantage as Ralph pulls wisdom from his bag of over 50 years experience in planting and leading multiplying churches. Our goal is to help you live as a leader you'd want to follow. You'll learn about making disciples and planting churches, but beyond that, you'll gain practical wisdom about subjects like how to manage your team, handling difficult people, pulling a congregation off a growth plateau, and even money management. You said earlier that we, we tend to look at the Bible through the paradigm of what we're reading. And, and, and the truth is, we just need to flip that upside down and, and look at whatever we read through the filter of the Bible. Um, I'm a lot older than you. I, I'm 75 years old. And I came up in a generation where uh, church was very much like it is today as a, when I was a child. It was smaller but it was very much like today in the post-war 1950s. And uh, I, our generation revolted against that. And kind of our, our, our way of doing things was, you know, we're going we're gonna to react by taking it over and doing it better. But we had this deep reverence for the Bible that was probably uh, originated in, in the Calvary Chapel movement in Southern California. It really affected a lot of us, a man named Chuck Smith. And so there, there was a, a, a kind of a holy skepticism toward what people would write, and, and we would look at it through scripture. And I, I see that it has gone away uh, for 20 years. And I, I'm, I'm hearing little, you know, it's like springtime, little buds of green coming out. And, and what you're saying is, seems to be one of those. It's, uh, it's exciting. You, you said um, that the church has become like small charitable companies. And, and I think you're right, nonprofits in America, but still companies. One of my friends said- We call them charities. You, yeah. Yeah, one of my friends- We, we said, call charities, you call nonprofits. Right. One of my friends said you could um, bring a non-believer in to become the lead pastor of most churches in America and nobody would know the difference. Uh, probably a guy, a non-believer is not going to start a church, but you could just walk in and, and run the corporation and, and it would just work real fine. Mm -hmm. You Then you used the term, you said uh, what we're replanting. Uh, what, what kind of shape does that begin to take? I know you're still, it's, it's a little early to tell, but you, you must have some ideas and some thoughts about connecting people. And while we're at it, um, you, you said a, a thing that I think you know, as a very old man who's known the Lord for 70 years, I, I discovered, I, you know, both of us have roots in the Pentecostal church. And to me, in, in Matthew, when Jesus is hanging out at Matthew's house and gets accused by the Pharisees of hanging out with sinners, there's actually three stories in a row in that chapter uh, where people are, are labeled as sinners and uh, labeled by the religious establishment as sinners. And then Jesus comes back with the wineskins thing and, and, the, and the patch in, sewn into an old garment and all that. But, you know, I grew up hearing from those that I was listening to that the new wine was the wine of the Holy Spirit and we're looking for revival, which in my mind meant, and, and I was part of this, you know, Lord, revive us. In other words, breathe new life into this old dumpy thing that we're doing. It's the opposite of what Jesus is saying. 
because the new wine in, in that, that, that's causing the conversation to happen are these, quote, sinners who are, are, are drinking and, and eating at Matthew's table with Jesus, and that ticks off the religious. So I, I think that, um, you know, and the, and the whole seeker-driven deal was about reaching out to these people who don't yet know Jesus, whatever, but somewhere we missed out on the what church really is, is a, is a relationship. And one of my friends has, has written a book called uh, um, Microchurch, A Smaller Way, a, a man named uh, Brian Sanders. And um, incredible book. And just, just the introduction is, is it just, you know, I actually read it in my devotions for five days in a row. But um, he, he would say minimally a church is a, a worshiping community, but worship is defined as Romans 12, surrender to Jesus, your whole life you know, laid on the line, uh, that they're in community, uh, which means that they have relationship with each other and that they're on mission, that every person is on mission. We, we give that lip service, but we don't do it. And he, he says, this is the ecclesial minimum. As soon as you put that in the context of microchurch, people want to instantly jump on it as, well, you're trying to get away with the least you possibly can and still call it a church. But, you know, I was, uh, I spent seven weeks I moved to San Diego from Honolulu, and I was uh, attending a large gathering of people. There were about 4,500 of them on a weekend. I would attend on Friday nights. There would be 1,000 people there, and they would not meet that ecclesial minimum, so I won't call it a church. They do, but I won't. Uh, I had, just before I moved, I had gone to a Bob Dylan concert, and, you know, everybody are strangers. They walk in. They enjoy the music. They walk out. Same thing would happen with this gathering of people every Friday night. The only difference was that there was no marijuana smell in the air uh, where I was at here on San Diego in San Diego, and they're all believers um, because nobody had any fellowship. So I doubt that that there, that thousand people are on mission during the week. I don't know that, but I do know this: they have no community, and it, and it, it's really sad. And then learning their infrastructure they're not providing any any source of community for the people in church so you're rebuilding and you're kind of trying to rebuild around new wine um, unpack that for us yeah i'll just make a comment on the word of god i think that in this whole season word and prayer has been huge for us so um um, myself and my wife have learned to pray together. We've been married 24 years, but we've learned to pray together like we've never prayed before. So we do 24-7 prayer. Everybody signs up for two-hour slots, however many want to do in the week. We now do our five slots every week together on a morning. That has revolutionized our understanding of what it means to follow Christ, of learning to listen to him together, of being challenged about the way we treat each other, what we're thinking about our neighbors, all by being with him uh, every day together in the place of prayer. And then the word piece, we've and we've had to go back and re-examine the scriptures rather than somebody's textbook. So uh, just cycling through gospels and acts and the epistles again and again and again, you know, I'm trying to do it every month, the whole New Testament acts uh, separate to that, Psalm separate to that. But it's just like, Lord, open my eyes, help me to see what I've missed in this and give me fresh eyes to see what you meant, not through the lens of how I was raised in church, but really help me to see it afresh. And so, yeah, that's been a, a radical journey. So what are we replanting? Um, I think what we know is that um, 
I felt the Lord saying to us back in April, you're going to let my people grow and you're going to let my people go. And that our structures um, in the past have not allowed people to grow. I mean, if you'd said that to me 15 months ago, I would say you're wrong. You know, we teach good. We've got good theology. We open up the Bible. We publicly read the Bible. We're very serious about teaching the character of God and the nature of God. You know, a lot of stuff charismatic churches won't do. We make it an intentional. But this, the way it's all structured is you attend. We make sure it's comfortable. We'll look after your kids. Make sure that the sermon's not too long. They've come shorter and shorter over the years. And that it just suits you just right. Then you can leave. None of that is conducive to being a disciple. Being a disciple is massively inconvenient. It messes with your house. It messes with your money. It messes with your timings. And the way church is structured, we want to make it as least uncomfortable and maybe as most comfortable as we can for people attending. And so that is so different. You know, I read this morning when the phrase was in Luke's gospel, there was a large crowd following Jesus and Jesus turned around and said, if anybody wants to follow me and doesn't hate their mother and father, and I'm thinking he sees a large crowd and he's not looking for a way to appease them and grow the crowd. He's almost thinking, how can I help them to understand what the cost is to follow me and that they're not just caught up in what everybody else is doing? That is so contrary to the way that most have been building and are still building. So so our thinking isn't just switching an old model for a new model. Because of what we're doing, it's been interesting how many church leaders in the UK are asking our opinion. What are you doing? Even denominations saying, would you speak to us about what God is saying? And what they really want to know is how often, who, where, what times. They want a model that they can take. And and we just keep kind of hearing the Lord saying, if you do that, you're back with another dead model and it won't work. This has to go to the heart of what it means to follow Christ, that it actually messes up my marriage. It doesn't. It actually strengthens my marriage, but it, 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 it works into everything. So I think that's the biggest revolution. We, we see smaller gatherings. We're going to, I think we're going to use the phrase home church because uh, 50 years ago, house church was a big thing here, but they had issues with those. We've got a few people in, in, in our church who were part of the house church movement in the 80s. And so they're on our leadership team and talking to them, we're now moving towards a home church uh, model, but it's not really a model. And, and what we keep hearing the Lord saying Keep the bare minimums at the center and let everything else go and allow them to behave like startups. Give them the permission to be innovative and creative. Um, I do see us as a family, uh, and I would use the phrase, and I know there's baggage with this, but the baggage is uh, for others in another era, not mine. I would call it an apostolic family, and we're trying to redeem that word back. Yeah. Uh, I think apostles are servants, they're fathers, they, they raise and lift people up. They're not like people who sit on top of an organization. And, and so what we want to do is really let them go and let them tell us how to reach their communities, what God is saying to them, um, while supporting them the best that we can as we move forward. I think we will still do a larger gathering from time to time, and the jury's still out as to how frequently we have decided it won't be on a Sunday. Uh, we'll probably do it midweek or a Saturday evening so that we actually legitimize the church gathering if they decide to meet on a Sunday. Though they don't need to meet on a Sunday, if it's more convenient for them to meet on another day, they could. So, yes, lots of smaller gatherings. 
that's exciting. You know, I, in the US, we're, we're using this word microchurch. Um, I, to, to me, when people ask what's a microchurch, I go, well, it's a house church that might not meet in a house. And, uh, you know, we, we built our <laughs> congregation in Hawaii around, we called them mini churches at the time. And we met on Sundays, but they met whenever they wanted to during the week. But we, we kind of looked at it as they're the church, we're the convention on the weekend. And, and, the, and the large exists to support the small rather than the small existing to feed the large. Because a lot of people, you know, they, they restructure, but the idea is we got to build this, this mass on the, on the weekend. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm involved with uh, some people who are doing this in bars. Uh, I've done it in, a, in an auto body shop, uh, sitting on paint cans. Um, right now, I'm leading a church. Um, it's, it's our church. We meet on Saturday nights on Zoom. And uh, one guy, one couple lives in Texas. The most people are in Northern California. I'm in Southern California. And we, you know, we're, we're now looking, how do we expand? What are we going to be doing in terms of mission? And one of the things that we're, we're aiming toward, and, and this, this doesn't work in a church, I think, like yours, at least not as well. You take 10% of your money and you isolate it, and you're a one, one family missions agency. You give that money away in Jesus' name because we don't need it. Don't bring it here. Um, these, these are radical ideas, but it's going to take radical change to, to, to get the ship to turn around. And it's going to take radical people who are the front runners who are going to get everybody else's attention doing things that people maybe even disapprove of. But those are, those are the things that will uh, construct a new movement and a, and a new generation forward. I'm reading a book about science. Uh, it's called Revolutions in Science. And I, I guess in the scientific community, it's a pretty big deal. I think the guy, na his name is Noons or something. You know, Kuhn, Roy Kuhn. Anyway, um, it says that there's normalcy. And, and basically everything that is done in terms of research is either to, to benefit from the normalcy or to prove the normalcy to be true. And so science goes along for a long time um, everything that we do is we've learned things in the last revolution, and now we don't even recognize it as a revolution. It's just what is is right. So we're, how can we, you know, how can we create new medicines out of this, or how how do we do research that supports this theory? And then an anomaly shows up, and and people are doing things differently, and 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 so science works to suppress the anomaly because it doesn't fit the paradigm. And then a crisis occurs, either a crisis like a pandemic or a crisis like the anomaly suddenly grows and flourishes and we have to pay attention to it. And so then now we go through this time of, of deconstruct, reconstruct. And then when we come out the other end, we have a new paradigm. And so a revolution has occurred. I believe that we're on the cusp of, of one of those. Uh, people have been doing you know, I think going back to the thing in Britain, because I know some people um, in uh, Texas who were leaders in, in the house church movement in Britain 50 years ago, and uh, very good friends, and, they're, and they've done some exciting things. But I think that was one of those anomalies. And I know it didn't work out well. It had come to Hawaii by the time I moved there. And I could tell you what was wrong with it there. It didn't work well, but it seeded people's thinking. And, and now 
Yeah, that kind of all died down. Uh, you mentioned the apostolic thing in America. We had this, you know, the apostles are at the top of the pyramid deal and all that. But along comes a, an author named Alan Hirsch and writes a book called The Forgotten Ways and refocuses the, 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 the main body of the church on Ephesians 4, 10 to 13. Uh, apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, evangelists. I believe they exist in every congregation, even a small one. And so, so, so now we, we have these things coming together and then we get the crisis, which, which causes all the anomalies to be able to move forward. And I, I think, yeah. you know, people like you are, are kind of, uh, somebody used this term shape shifters. Uh, you're shifting the shape of the church and you don't quite know where it's going, which I think is a really good thing because that means you're staying dependent upon the Holy Spirit. Um, this this is really. I think we what what happened to. So I I had in my mind this is the leadership piece of me in November last year thought we're going to have April back in the building, and I will use the time from November to April to work out how we're going to recognize all our home church leaders, how we're going to train them. We'll get training in place, we'll get them all sorted, get the people back in the building, tell them what we're doing, and by May we'll roll out this new program of home churches. The closer we got to April, the more fraught every conversation was becoming. And I felt the Lord really challenged me. You're trying to own and control everything I'm trying to do again. But it's what I've been trained to do in church leadership. I, I've been told it's wise leadership. It's good stewardship. It's strategic. But we've really heard the Lord saying to us recently, don't finish my sentences. And if I give you a sentence, don't write a paragraph. And if I give you a paragraph, don't turn it into a chapter. I think I've done that for years, and I think the church has done that, thinking it's good stewardship and good leadership. And instead, what we've kind of heard the Lord saying to us, learn to be like a child again. And so this, this childlike, I'm going to trust the Heavenly Father. You know, you read it in the book of Acts all the time. They tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not let them. And there's a few places they tried to go into in Acts 16, but they couldn't get in. Yeah. And, and I'll be like, well, if I've sent a missions team and I'm paying their money and you're paying their, you know, food and board, I'll be like, I don't care where you're going. Just go and preach the gospel. It'll work anywhere. And yet these people will not do what the Holy Spirit will not give them permission to do. And I, I think that's a restoration of being childlike. And the church has to learn that childlikeness all over again. That's part of my unlearning and learning that we only move as far as the Lord lets us, even though others may think we're foolish. So we ended up, instead of launching this big thing in April, saying to our church family, we're on a journey. There's some things that we see clearly. There's other things that we don't yet see. Are you willing to go on the journey with us as we listen to the Lord together, pray together? And actually, there's been a better buy-in for that than there would have been. We're switching and we're doing this. So, yeah. So that leads me to a question. Um, were there people who didn't decide to go on that journey with you? Yeah, one of our campuses actually really didn't want to, couldn't see. I mean, theologically, they can understand disciple making, and the pastor, campus pastor could understand what we were trying to do. But losing a post or a position yeah. is a big thing. And for the church to lose the person that runs around after them, it wasn't a big campus but I could see they were very much wanting to keep their pastor and keep him looking after them. And he quite enjoyed doing what he was doing. So we, we actually released them to continue to do what they do rather than force the issue and make them do what we, we just felt the Lord saying, be gracious and uh, release them to carry on, do what they do. So 
Yeah, so that's one. I think there are people in the church itself here locally that some left in June or July last year, um, couldn't understand what we were trying to do, what we were talking about, and just started their own thing. So I and I, I dare say there's yet to be more fallout, but we've, we've kept one of the phrases. We've had so many new phrases over the last year that the Lord's been saying, and one of them has been by many or by few, and this sense of it doesn't matter whether there's a few or lots, and the story of Gideon really coming through in that, and that um, if you obey me, there's great fruitfulness on the other end of it. And, and I guess for me, the driving factor is one day I'm going to have to stand before Jesus and I have to give an account. And I would rather have had good integrity and done what I knew he was calling me to do than keep the status quo going now and people happy and then be embarrassed on that day. Uh, one of our prayers, I think we stole it from somebody else, but it's just, Lord, shock me now. Don't shock me then. <laughs> I, I would rather be shocked and embarrassed now than on that day when I stand before you. And so living in the light of eternity gives us courage to make the right decisions now. You know, as, as you uh, brought us to this point, the, one of the things that I hear you saying is that we release them with grace. Uh, you know, we had we always had a rule there's, that we'll never allow a church split, because if you want to split from us, we're just going to bless you. And 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 uh, and then the other thing that you mentioned was that there probably are still some people who are going to leave. Uh, I I wouldn't think you really have heard the Lord and and that there's a revolution going on if there weren't some people leaving, and that and if you didn't have the grace to allow them to leave freely. You know, I have a friend who says, would you rather be the leader of, of a thousand comfortable people or would you rather be the leader of a hundred people who are on mission? And I, you know, it's obvious I would want to be the leader of a hundred people on mission, but I think about this. Would you rather be the leader of 10,000 people with a hundred people on mission or would you rather be the leader of, and let's be realistic because not everybody's going to be on mission, of 150 people with a hundred people on mission? I would choose the 150 because I don't want 9,000 people who are just getting in the way of the 100. Um, you, you know, the Gideon. Yeah, um, very, very good perspective. Yeah, it's much more than just a metaphor. I think Gideon is a huge lesson in the power of the Lord to do amazing things when people are really the right people and committed. Yeah, I, I, I won't remember the quote totally, but is it John Wesley who said, give me 100 men? who fear nothing but God and hate nothing but sin. This sense that they're on mission, they're, they're sold out. I'll just need a hundred. We can turn the world upside down. And yeah. he, did. he did. Well, um, if somebody wanted to know more from you, want to get a hold of you, how, how would they go about that? Um, they, I mean, we're, the church is called All Nations. Uh, we're also a family of churches across the UK. Um, so All Nations, Wolverhampton, All Nations Movement, Steve Uppel, just the regular searches they'll find us. I'm on Instagram and stuff. I'm not hot on social media, but uh, if they want to reach out, they're able to. So spell your last name so people will know what, what we're talking about here. Yeah. So Steve and then U-P-P-A-L. U-P-P-A-L. Okay. Yeah. And they can reach me on my own website, which is steveuppel.com. Very good. Well, I want to say thanks for taking time to do this. And I, th I think we probably have two podcasts in the can here. This is this is really a rich one. I, I don't often do two, but this yeah. one is going to for sure be two. 
So. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and check his blog at ralphmoore.net.